You are listening to the Vincast, Australia's premier podcast dedicated to the world of wine. The podcast lives and breathes off its feedback, and one of the reasons that I've continued it for so long is because I've really appreciated hearing from listeners who have uh, told me what they like about the show, particular guests they might have uh, enjoyed hearing about. So uh, I really do encourage everyone, if you do listen to the podcast on a regular basis and you enjoy it, please do get in touch with me to let me know uh, and maybe make some suggestions about how you might uh, think I should change the show. Uh, You can do that via email. Uh, you can get me at thevincast at gmail.com. Uh, you can head to my website, intrepidwino.com. Uh, there's a contact page there. But also, uh, I'd love to hear from you via the iTunes page for the podcast. Uh, you can leave a five-star rating if you uh, feel it deserves it uh, and leave a review, which is not just good feedback for myself, but also for potential listeners and for potential guests. Thank you to everyone for all your support, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Episode 113 of the Vincast, I chat with Fiona Donald, 20-year veteran of the Australian wine industry and head winemaker at Seppeltsfield in the Barossa Valley. Hello there, Vincasters. Welcome to another episode of the Vincast Wine Podcast. My name is James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. We are rapidly approaching the uh, the end of the year, the festive season. Uh, the weather hopefully seems to be improving, at least um, here in Melbourne. Uh, time to be uh, opening lots of beautiful wines, white wines, sparkling wines, uh, any kind of wine you enjoy at this time of year. Um, but uh, I hope you have been uh, enjoying the podcast of late. I know that uh, it's been great to have some really amazing guests on the show, uh, and this week's guest is no exception. Fiona Donald um, graduated from Rosewood College uh, in the early 1990s and has had an incredible winemaking career working for some very historic uh, wine producers in some of the most important wine regions in Australia. And uh, for the past five or six years, she has been working at the helm of Seppeltsfield, the uh, arguably the most historic wine producer in the Barossa Valley in South Australia. Uh, and I caught up with her recently at a wonderful tasting, looking at some beautiful old fortified wines. And we sat down and had a chat about her background and uh, how important Seppeltsfield is. I hope you enjoy the, uh, our chat. Uh, please stick around to the end so you can find out how to get in touch with both of us. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Fiona, here we are in the uh, incredible cellars under, underneath the old Dan Murphy store here in Paran. And uh, you are my guest on uh, the Vincast. Welcome. Thanks for your time. Thank you, James. Nice to be here. Uh, Fiona, I typically start every episode of my podcast by asking my guests if they can remember the first interaction they had with wine that made them think about it in a different way and, you know, that kind of set them on the path to working in the wine industry. Well, I grew up in suburban Sydney and really my first memories of wine are really, you know, the bottle of Horton White Burgundy mm-hmm. uh, in the fridge. So Classic. Mum and Dad enjoyed a bottle of, uh, you know, a glass of wine, bottle of wine, 
um, but weren't necessarily um, you know, really uh, into wine or wine collectors particularly. Um, I... So they enjoyed wine. They they drank wine fairly enjoyed regularly wine, at home. Dinner parties, yep. you know, okay. a bottle of wine, you know, Hunter River, you know, Shiraz, Port and White Burgundy, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so really, my own first interaction with wine was um, really as a high school student who was doing science subjects, but also doing home economics. I, I had an interest in food technology. That's where it all started. Right. Um, but I actually read an article in a magazine about um, a family wine business in the Arrow Valley called One Turner Estate. And that was the first moment where I had some inkling or thought that perhaps this business of making wine might be more interesting than food technology. What was it about the article or, or the, the It was the a father and daughter estate? story. Right, okay. Yeah, so it was about Marianne. Were you and, close with your dad? And uh, Growing up? Yeah, look, I was close to, close to both my parents. I think it was just more that sense of, um, you know, it's late 80s, I went to an all-girls school. Okay. Girls can do anything oh, sort right. of thing. Okay. That probably captured my imagination initially. And then in the article there were aspects um, of the article around, you know, the science and art of winemaking. Sure. Which, which uh, captured, you know, captured my um, imagination. And, and that was where you sort of thought about how you might kind of head into that career path? Well, that's right. I remember going out to mum in the kitchen and saying, oh, I've just read this really interesting article and it's about, you know, winemaking in the Arrow Valley and it's father and daughter and it just sounds really interesting. And mum said, oh, winemaking, hmm, don't really know anything about winemaking or where would you study it or how do you learn it? And we yeah. were really, you know, had no idea. Right. And um, I remember mum saying, as an avid reader of the Australian Women's Weekly, oh, there's a fellow in the magazine with a, a column who writes about, you know, life and wine. Mm-hmm. I'll look that up. And it was Lynn Evans. There you go. So well, we really had not much of a clue who he was. Sure. Um, but I sat down as a 17-year-old and wrote him a letter. Really? What, what's saying? Dear, mis- Dear Mr Evans, you know, my name is, I'm in Year 12 at. I've just read this article. It was very, you know, a, a letter of a teenager, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I think this is interesting. I don't know where to start. You know, you write the column in the... Australian Women's Weekly, blah, blah, blah. So then uh, he didn't write back to me, uh, but he rang me. Wow. So, so I remember, again, my mum answered the phone and came, you know, came and found me and said, um, someone's on the phone for you, it's Len Evans. And, you know, so I remember saying, you know, hello, Fiona speaking. Evans here. <laughs> and uh, he just, uh, well, commended me for putting pen to paper and writing a letter. Yeah. Um, um, but also that's where he advised me that if you wanted to study winemaking in Australia at that time, you went to Roseworthy College of course. in South Australia. Yep. So I had to write another letter yep. to Roseworthy. Yep. Could I please have all your admissions information about your uh, uh, anology? You know, I didn't really know how to say it, yep. but your anology course, and that all came by post. You know, it was before the days of Googling. And, um, and in, so in the end, I applied to Roseworthy College for winemaking, Sydney University for Science, got into both, and then made, made the big life-changing decision. If you hadn't gone into wine, would you have followed a career in, in science, do you think? Well, I would have gone to Sydney University and done science and, and maybe moved down a food technology path. Fair enough. I might have found wine in the end. Yeah. I'm not sure. But I, uh, yeah, it's like a sliding door story, isn't it? Really? <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, mum and dad were fully supportive, you know, back going down to South Australia from the wilds of suburban Sydney. And so the following... Um, January, late January, driven down to Rose, Roseworthy with my suitcase and my my cassette deck and <laughs> and 
and started at Rosewood in 1988. So um, was... Winemaking, as far as uh, study, was that um, gaining popularity at that time? Were there a lot? Were there, you know, a growing number of students at Roseworthy? Um, well, I can only answer that by saying the year before us, I think, had eight people in it. Right. Um, eight or ten, and our year had twenty-two. Yeah. Okay. So, but really, I realise. I look back now how naive I was. I had no idea about, you know, that was the end of the nineteen eighties. And all the angst and the, the grief of the vine pool, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the Barossa, which is, of course, Roseworthy's near the Barossa. I had no idea what the industry had gone through. So this was uh, like just before the, uh, the rather large boom of the 90s? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, all of us who studied at that time, um, and most of us graduated, walked out into jobs. Yeah. So again, looking back just how fortunate we were to really sort of catch that wave of the boom of the 90s. Sure. And pretty much our whole group that went through together walked into into a job that they wanted. Was there any particular aspect of studies at, at, at Roseworthy that really appealed to you? Did, you? did you connect with any particular part, you know, whether it was the science side of things or did you get an interest in viticulture? Uh, so certainly, you know, tasting was completely new to me, yeah. to, to taste in that way and be taught how to taste wine. Um Given I've killed every pot plant I've ever owned, um, viticulture was a revelation, mm-hmm. just how vines, you know, grow and, and the new wood each year and pruning. Um, you know, I had Peter Dry as a lecturer, fantastic lecturer. Mm. Um, I listened to him present at the recent Wine Industry Tech Conference this year and it was just like being back, you know, listening to a Peter Dry lecture. Yeah. Just so informative and engaging. Yeah. So, so I'd really only thought about winemaking. I hadn't thought about viticulture, but of course, you know, that's where it all starts, quality yep. grapes. Yeah. Uh, really, the whole course was, you know, the whole course was fantastic. Wine chemistry is fascinating. Was that sort of the where the industry was heading at the time, where they needed, you know, more qualified winemakers, rather than viticulturists? Uh, well, when I did the course, it was a winemaking course with some viticulture okay. um, subjects. Right. A couple of years. Um, later, they actually split the degree. And now they've been, well, at least at the University of Adelaide, they've been joined back together now, apparently. Oh, have they? No, yeah. I'm not aware of that. But certainly for a long period of time, it was a separate right, um, degree okay. if that's what you chose to do. So you, so you were able to do some, some viticulture studies as well? Yep. Okay. Yeah. What was your first job in the industry? My first uh, job was in 1990, and I was a vintage seller hand at Thomas Hardy & Sons down at Tintara right, in okay. McLaren Vale. Yeah, beautiful yeah. winery. A fantastic winery, and that was before. I mean, it's it's awesome now because they've done um, so much, uh, you know, capital expenditure on the open fermenter area. Yeah. Um, but back when I worked there, it was the original concrete fermenters with the oh, waxed wooden headboards. Heaven, heaven. Mm. I love concrete. Yeah. Sorry, it's part of the reason why I love Sapportsfield so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, was it a pretty challenging experience? It was like challenging. Going it was straight in. Challenging, eye-opening. Forgive me for saying this, but a fairly male-dominated environment. I uh, yes, it was. Yeah. Yep. yep. So, um, but it, we, it, it, everyone worked in pairs. All right. So you were working with someone else, and you know, got taught how to set up a pump, and you know, you suction your delivery, and how to pump things over, and take samples and temperatures, and you know, a wide range of of um, you know wine making and cellar activities, yeah. Um, and so then after that vintage, um, obviously went back and finished um, third year at Roseworthy, and then late that year, 
um, Thomas Hardy and Sons advertised for an operational winemaker down at Tintara. Right. So I threw my hat in the ring and uh, I was fortunate enough to, to be successful in getting that role. So I went back in 1991 right. as um, operational winemaker. With um, that facility, were you looking at um, fruit and then subsequently wine from a lot of different sites and a lot of and potentially different regions as well? Uh, back then, it, for that site, for that company, it was um, mainly McLaren Vale. Right. A little bit of Clare would come down. Okay. And then uh, fruit would come up from the big Padthaway vineyard yep. that Hardy's had down there. Yeah. Um, but it was mostly getting to know McLaren Vale and all the, the sub-regions um, of, of McLaren Vale. Mm, the rare earth. Rare earth, yes. <laughs> so, you know, from all the beautiful um, contour-type vineyards around um, the old Seaview winery to, you know, Blewett Spring Sands um, and then, you know, blocks down closer to the coast. So, Right. Um, my, the, my boss at the time, David O'Leary, who's now, you know, O'Leary, O'Leary Walk, Walker. Wines yep. up in Clare. Um, right back then it was about going out to the vineyard, looking, tasting, monitoring the, the flavour development alongside the Beaumet. Mm-hmm. And, and making the call and how you're going to split the vineyard and you know whether it went into one of the bigger tanks or whether it went across four open fermenters or, or whatever. How long did you end up working at, uh, at the Tintara facility? So I did, if you include 1990s as cellar hand, I did three vintages there as operational winemaker. Mm-hmm. And then during that time, um, so this really speaks to probably what was happening in the industry and you know, companies were starting to merge. Okay. And so that's when BRL Hardy was formed. Right. So when Hardy's merged with Berry Romano. Yes. So in the middle of 1993, they said, uh, oh, hey, you know, chief winemaker and uh, my boss, you're doing quite a good job. We're going to send you up to the Riverland to be red winemaker at Romano. Right. Okay. So that was a, a pretty reasonable sea change to go. It was. So I went from, from a, a winery. To the beach to the exactly. <laughs> irrigated river. Yeah. So went from a winery that did about 5,000 tonnes to a winery that did 20. Right. So Berry was actually, you know, that's the really large winery. Rinmano was, you know, big, mm-hmm. um, but about 20,000 tonnes. Yep. So then I worked there. The white wine maker was a woman called Amory Wosley. So you had this 20,000 tonne winery in the Riverland with two, two winemakers who happened to be female. Wow. Yeah. Um, had, at that point, had you started to develop any particular um, interest in regionality or particular varieties? Did we, or were you still f- fairly open-minded and just t- tasting as much as you could and, 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 and finding, you know, how, what, you, what, what you could? Um, yeah, still, you know, tasting as much as you could. But really, you know, I was really firmly a winemaker of Shiraz. That's, that's really where my, my first two jobs had taken me. And you had a passion for, for old vine? Um, I think, yes, but, you know, in the end, you know, old vine doesn't guarantee quality. Okay. So it really comes down to the quality of the, the cultural practices, the management, um, and really, you know, the biggest unknown of all, the, the season. Yeah. What it throws at you. Yep. So with the facility uh, up in the Riverland, um, were, was, you know, a fair amount of um, bulk wine? Are we talking, you know, cask wine type stuff or...? Um, we had um, we had reasonably small fermenters for that part of the world. We had, um, I think, 35 tonne, 30 tonne static fermenters. So okay. that's when um, the chairman selection wine label was, you know, in its heyday. Okay. Um, so that we had a Cabernet and a Shiraz that went to bottle and then a lot of the wine found its way into, you know, bulk t- containers for Europe or... Right, okay, so it's exporting in bulk, yeah. Yep, yep. 
That must have been uh, interesting to, to to go from you know a mid-sized facility to a fairly large facility. It was, but you learn a lot of good lessons in a big, big facility. What, what are the kind of the the, the the bigger challenges in that larger facility? I think it's um, the site's bigger for starters, but um, just you know planning and or- being organised and you know communicating with the staff and being very clear about what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, just you know. Make sure you've got systems so that nothing falls through the cracks. Sure. If something needs to go into the laboratory for analysis, it does, and then you follow that analysis up and do what you have to do for every batch, you know, every day. Yeah. So it's really it's just uh, good discipline. Were you uh, get an opportunity to do much travel at that point? Were you heading out to any other regions in Australia or perhaps overseas? Um, probably my real eye opener was when I was at Rosewood because we were, you know, you were right near Clare, Barossa, McLaren Vale. So right. Got to know those regions. Okay. Um, fairly well. And and some of the people you were studying with, had they come from wine family backgrounds? Did they? Did you get the opportunity to, to taste wines with them, some older stuff as well? Actually, most of my um, um, contemporaries at Rosewithy weren't from winemaking families. Right, okay. Yeah, they're people who had, had an interest or had, um, you know, had done a bit of pruning because they lived near... You know, an area with vines, or you know, their dad was an avid collector. Right. Okay. Other reasons. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, and how long did you end up in the Riverland? So I was up there for two years. Okay. Uh, and then in October of 1995, I was successful in getting the job at um, Brossa Valley Estate. Oh, BVE. When it was still down at Anglevale. Mm-hmm. So Colin Glatzer um, had left BVE to go and start his own um, company. Yep. Up in the Brossa, Brossa Vintners, and I had applied. I applied for that job. I'm successful in getting that. Yep. So uh, my my boss at the time was Gunter Prass, who had um, semi-retired and then came out of semi-retirement to um, help manage um, the co-op effectively, which, okay. was, which was Brossa Valley Estate. So yep. it was amazing to work with him. Yeah. You know. I mean, well, this so this was the first. You know, entry into the Barossa region for yes. you, yep. uh, and you know Barossa Valley Estate was a, a fairly unique uh, entity in Australian terms because you know, as a cooperative, you know, it's a very common thing in Europe where you have grower members who are, you know are providing fruit to the facility to make it into that brand. Yep. You know, and they effect- they're effectively employing people to run the winery um w- was that pretty interesting working with all the uh, different grower members was the best introduction to the barossa um in terms of there were still 65 shareholders in barossa valley state at that point and it, it, it was the best introduction you know to gain that understanding of the barossa's history you know, these families were fifth sixth generation um and a typical barossa story in terms of um you know escaping religious persecution in Europe, to come to Australia and, and you know, end up in the Barossa, a lot of these people were, you know, their farms were mixed, mm-hmm. so they did other things apart from from grapes, and yep. that was their, you know, their heritage and their culture. So you could, you know, bake bread and put meat on the table and that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I, I still know many of those people today, and they're still, um, you know, growing grapes, or either their sons or their. Or daughters, or grandsons, or granddaughters, are now running those same blocks. And that is sort of one of the really unique things about the Barossa is that you have that grower, you know, wine company kind of separation. His- historically, you know, you don't really find that as much in other Australian regions. Um, that must be a really interesting to sort of um, be looking at these 
in, possibly in some cases very small parcels and historic parcels as well. Mm. I, I'm sure um, working for Boros Valley Estate, you would have had some, uh, particularly that would have really fed your love of, of Shiraz, I'm sure. Yeah, we had access to some beautiful fruit from, you know, gnarly old vines. Um, and so, so obviously BVE was a co-op, so it was all growers. Yeah. But after I, I did a couple of years at BVE and then I moved to Penfolds. Okay. And so that was, um, that was you know, another ramp up, if you like, because in the Barossa they had company vineyards, obviously the famous vineyards, Kalimna and Canunga Hill, yep. uh, but still a large portfolio of growers. Yeah. So a lot of small batches, a lot of colour and movement, a lot of interest, a lot of interesting, you know, parcels of fruit, a lot of, um, you know, different approaches to growing quality grapes. So um, quite a patchwork. And a really exciting time as well, those mid-90s where everything seemed possible and, you know, fruit prices were fantastic. Everyone was making good money. Yeah, and we had some fantastic vintage. I mean, 96 was a terrific vintage. 98 was a very ripe, robust vintage, but, I, you know, some really terrific wines still. I managed, I managed to secure some bin, bin 389, 96, right. and, oh, God, it was still looking good yeah. 20 years later. Yeah, and yeah, in 99 as well, a bit of a sleepy year, but mm-hmm. those wines have aged beautifully as well. Yeah. Uh, how long did you end up at Penfolds? So I ended up working there for about 10 years. Really? Okay. So were you working under John Duvall and then? Uh, yes. So John was the um, chief winemaker. Yep. And, and then Peter? And then um, Peter was um, the group enologist. Right. And then he um, moved into the, the chief winemaker role. Mm. And, and really, uh, two of Australia's finest, certainly, Shiraz winemakers. It must have been a pretty amazing experience to work with such a, you know, a, a great team. Oh, the whole Penfolds way of doing things is is an amazing experience to, to be part of that. Mm-hmm. So from how we assessed the blocks of, of fruit, how we made the decision to harvest, how we scheduled that in, which you know parcels of fruit went to different size fermenters, um, you know, what we did in the morning in terms of Beaumet tasting, what you did in the afternoon in terms of press red and rack red tastings. Yeah. You know, always tasting, always checking, classifying, um, making sure we had each pass of wine in, in its right classification. Yeah. And then, of course, come late May, June, the big classification tasting, which was, you know, terrific. And you'd have people like John Bird would come back and do a couple of days. So you're drawing on all this wonderful experience, mm. you know, the depth of experience in that brand. Mm. And, and no doubt, I, I suppose, obviously, with BVE, it was part of, um, you know, the, the nature of the business. But with Penfolds, the, the, having that close relationship with the growers um, must be... I know that, it, uh, if, if memory serves me, they do something really special for, like, they're really, you know, serious growers where fruit's going into Grange, for example. That's right. They have a Grange, a growers Grange group and... Um, the way they, they you know celebrate those growers who've who've grown the fruit that make it into Grange is an annual lunch down at McGill Estate. Right, yeah. And um, it's really my, know, my memory has served me well. It has indeed, <laughs> and it's you know it's, it's a real um, um, you know honour. I mean, I visited um, Karina Wright recently at Oliver's Tarango. Sure. And in her cellar drawer up on the wall is all the photos of all the years where fruit from that block has made Grange. Yeah. And you know the, the sense of pride is fantastic. You know, for her and for her uncle um, Don, who grows the, who, grow, who grows the grapes. Yeah. Um, you know, the sense of pride is is just palpable. Was um, working with did you have a particular area of focus when you were working with Penfolds? So I was a senior red winemaker, so okay. worked with all the the red winemaking team. Wow. 
Yeah, I actually had two roles when I was with that company. I um, also during that time got married and, and I have two children. And so while my children were young, I actually went to another role, which was winemaker vineyard liaison. Right. So instead of just being involved with the vineyards at Vintage mm-hmm. and the prior to harvest decision, yep. it was all year round, you know, visit um, our growers with our grower services team and just get, gain more insight and understanding to the vineyards we were sourcing from, people's pruning, talking about the weather, disease pressure, their water resource, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. that, was, that was a good couple of years as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what, what was next after Penfolds? Um, so a little bit of uh, time off. Um, we actually went overseas for a year. My husband had a job in Austria. Oh, wow. For a year, which was interesting. We were living in Bergenland in Austria. Nice. Um, and, you know, we did a bit of travelling, side trips, skiing, and, you know, took kids to London and that sort of thing. Did you take the opportunity to... Um you know, taste some more European wines and particularly Austrian wines? We did. We probably mainly just – it wasn't as easy as you might think to go and buy other European wines because when you were in Austria, in Burgenland, then it was all there. Mm. You know, they drank their own region's wines. Lots of Blaufrankisch. Blaufrankisch and Zweigelt. (laughs) Yes. um, The beautiful sweet wines from Rust around Lake Neusiedlersee. So that was a, an interesting year. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't working, but I'd, um, you know, someone's going to the winery and taste with, with Matt, but the, the kids were, you know, they were still little. Um, and then came home and worked back for a couple of years with Constellation Hardy's. Right, okay. Um, but then uh, the opportunity for Silsfield knocked on the door. Yes. So... Obviously, uh, a location uh, and a brand with a certain amount of history. Yes. Um, yeah, obviously, started by the the Seppelts family. The Seppelt family, eighteen fifty one. Yes. Yep. Um, what was it like, kind of stepping into that role? That, uh, you know, we, into somewhere with that is so intrinsically linked to Australian wine history and Barossa history. Oh, it's, it's, it's an honour and really I think pretty much all of us who work there feel like we're custodians. Yeah. So you're looking after what's there, hopefully you leave it a little better than you found it, you know, that sort of thought process. Um, uh, but the sense of history is, you know, again, it, it's palpable, it's there and, and even just from working in a winery that was built in 1888 yeah. to our, you know, fantastic staff in Celador who do the daily heritage tour and you hear them telling that the fabulous separate family... Um, history, yeah. you know, over and over again, with the same level of detail and and, and passion for for that story. Because one of the the added levels of um, heritage with uh, a winery like Seppeltsfield, it's not just about you know the viticultural heritage in terms of you know the, the age of the vines and and those beautiful old sites. It's not just in terms of the infrastructure of you know the buildings and the equipment and stuff like that, but it's also the the Venice. Um, heritage when you have wine in the cellars which has been there for you know a hundred years Absolutely. We had the longest you very much are a custodian of of that kind you, you, you are have to be respectful of all of the people who made the wines Absolutely. You know, in a hundred vintages going yeah. back so we had the longest unbroken line of year dated tawny in the world mm. with the first vintage being 1878 so there's definitely older wines in the world um, but our claim is the longest unbroken line of year-dated tawnies yeah. in the world. So, um, you know, the 2016 went to wood in, in May. Yeah. Um, and, you follow, and you just, you know, follow the lineage from 1878 and, and you'll find the 2016. So um, when you started at Seppeltsford, was that, was that kind of when Warren Randall bought 
Yes. Sepals Field. And so you were brought in to work with a team to kind of revitalise, rejuvenate the brand and, and, and the estate? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Warren um, gave me a ring one day and sort of out of the blue and I had known him from, you know, previous um, interactions in the past, past when I was at Penfolds mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, it really was a call out of the blue. And when someone says, oh, I'm just ringing to let you know I've bought half a Sebbelsfield. And he said, well, who buys half a Sebbelsfield? You know, it was sort of um, unheard of, really, yeah. because it is such a, a grand estate. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we got chatting. He got chatting about his um, vision and his aspirations and plans for Sebbelsfield and said, I'd like you to, I'd like you to join the team. Mm-hmm. So um, I did. So it's eight minutes from home, so that's quite handy. <laughs> um, but certainly, you're right. I mean, Sepplesfield's um, reputation is, you know, for the, the wonderful old um, fortified heritage. Yeah. Um, but what we've done there um, in the last eight years is um, revitalise um, the Gravity Flow Winery. Okay. So that was really lying dormant. It was a bit of a museum piece, mm-hmm. an interesting building. I, I remember seeing it. To go and look at. Yep. Yeah. And now uh, it's fully operational at Vintage. Right. That's fantastic. So we've got 128 tonne open fermenters. Wow. Um, and we put about 4,000 tonnes through that winery. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, parcels of premium Barossa Shiraz, um, Grenache, Mataro, Cabernet. Plus that's where we have a go, you know, if we've, we've um, had some success with Tempranillo, Tried Sangiovese up there. Of course, I've got the Tariga on the property, which makes interesting dry red for, for blending. So at Vintage, it's just it's the heartbeat of the property at Vintage. Hmm. So if you can, if you don't mind me asking, can you just sort of talk a little bit about why Sepals Food is such an important historical you know, winery uh, in the context of the Barossa and Australia? I think my understanding of the Sepult family is they were great philanthropists Mm -hmm. and when um, Joseph Sepult and his wife Joanna um, fled Europe and ended up in South Australia and the Barossa, um, the story goes that they paid for the passage of 18 other families. Right. So there's a huge, you know, that philanthropic um, part of them, plus they're a big family. Um, Unfortunately, Joseph died young, but his eldest son, Benno, took over the business um, and him and his wife, who was a local uh, woman, they had um, 14 surviving children. So a really big family um, who were philanthropic and entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, originally they came from a little town called Walter Pottersdorf and they were tobacconists and made elixirs. And so, for example, the red cordial in our portfolio that exists today harks back to that that part of their history. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, so big family. Uh, it was a mixed farm, so they tried their hand at, you know, lots of things. They did try to plant tobacco in the Barossa, which didn't really prosper. Um, but they, you know, grew crops, they raised animals, made their own bread. Um, the fantastic old smokehouse at Sepplesfield, which hadn't been lit for 85 years, was lit a couple of years ago. Wow. Um, and the on-site caterer used it to smoke bacon. Oh, yeah. It smelled terrific, worked a treat, you know, amazing. So there's all that, that depth of history. Plus there's really terrific stories such as during the Depression, you know, the 1920s, um, when the business, you know, everyone was suffering and uh, couldn't pay all their staff, but for lodgings and one meal per day, Ben I kept them on and that's when the, uh, the palms right. were, were um, you know, grown and then planted to make that famous avenue of palms. And which has been used on a label. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, and of course, they they also had um, the the winery and holdings in uh, what became part of the Grampians region, but it's Great Western. Correct. Yes. Um, and you know, obviously, they they did great things there, and yeah. And, yeah, and of course, they also had a winery in, in Rutherglen as well. Yes, exactly. So. And and that's uh, that kind of fortified part of the business is. I would think what they're most famous for, um, uh, when you sort of came on board, had you had a lot of experience with fortified winemaking? Uh, my experience with fortified had been a little bit to do with, with Tawny. Okay. Uh, and But also VPs in my time at, at Hardy's. Right. Exposure to the Hardy style and the Ranella style yep. of VP um, and, and Tawny. Yep. So I hadn't really had much to do with Apera. Okay. Sherry. Yep. So that's been a learning curve. Yep. And I hadn't had anything to do with fortified sweet white styles, such okay. as um, uh, musket and uh, topaque. So that was uh, a bit of a learning curve? Yeah, huge learning curve. A lot of it is listening to those around you and taking really good notes. And, you know, the next time you taste, might be 12 months later, you taste that group number again, you know, you check your notes and has the wine evolved or does it need any work or, you, you know, you need to do a new bottling blend. There's a lot of um, record keeping and cross-checking. And, and no doubt, you know, part of the reason why um, Foster's, Treasury Wine Estates, possibly had trouble with it was because of the, the, the market for fortified wines uh, and so no doubt you know it was a bit of a, a risk for, for Warren to to buy Sepultsville or to buy 50% um, in in the hopes of rejuvenating the brand what was what was the approach as far as the, the fortifies when you were brought on were, were you looking to we, consolidate or expand or revitalize um, fortified wine market well we do need to maintain our heritage and um, we have seen increase in the percentage sales over the last eight years. Right. Um, Warren also opened through open the cellar, if you like, and we were, you know, we were selling some parcels of fortified right. to other Australian winemakers. Okay. So there's, you know, um, you know, muskets and other wines bobbing up around the place. So that's been terrific to, to you know, help build their interest in, in fortifieds that way as well by right. throwing open the cellar. Uh, and were you also? Um, was part of it to kind of make more still wines as well? Yes. So uh, the table wine range in the cellar door, and the first vintage was 2010. Yeah. So that has an Eden Valley Riesling. It has a Barossa Vermentino, which is really uh, great wine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're being interrupted by two former podcast guests. <laughs> We'll let, we'll let you go on. Sorry. That's Max's fault. It must be... Cheeky, cheeky. Oh, that's good. Um, and very importantly, there's a Barossa Shiraz, but perhaps even most importantly, there's a Sepultsfield Barossa Valley Grenache in the portfolio. When, when was the first table wine released? Because I feel like I tasted in, one... Cause I was under there. this new ownership with yeah, Killer Canoon and Warren, I, I 2010. Was, that was when it was released, or that was the first vintage? That was the first vintage. Because I remember being visiting with my dad in 2011. It was just before I went overseas, so it was, I think, in September of 2011. It was over in Adelaide for my graduation. And, um, and I remember seeing, I, I, I seem to remember a, a white wine, maybe? Eden Valley Riesling? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, more... Uh, I believe there was a Sepultsfield wine in the, the, the show, the Alternative Varieties Wine Show. It was a Fiat... Fermentino. Fermentino. Yes. Yep. 
Um, so that's uh, fruit from one of our growers. Okay. So we were really after the Shiraz and um, the Vermentino came as a uh, another parcel of fruit and has ended up being a fantastic journey. It's a great variety. Right. Uh, it's um, one of the varieties that's talked about that perhaps is dealing with changing weather patterns sure. better than others. It doesn't drop its bundle. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it because it's, it's not an aromatic, it's not a full body, body, it sits right in the middle and just has a lovely salt lick sort of minerality to it. doesn't need oak. Our style doesn't. We do a more fresh aromatic style rather right. than um, a fuller bodied, you know, oak influenced style. Um, but once people try it and, really, you know, they can say Vermentino and understand it, it it's really popular. So, um, is Warren very supportive? Is, 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 do you have to find a balance between kind of um, respecting the heritage and, you know, as you said, custodian of the brand, but also are you encouraged to do some experimenting and doing some new things oh. which potentially aren't necessarily part of that sort of Seppelt's field uh, image but uh, embracing change? Well, certainly with, we... Um uh, Nero Diablo has been planted on the property. Really? Okay. So we've had a couple of goes at that. We haven't decided we've made one good enough to, to put out yet in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely that sense of, you know, which varieties suit, you know, that part of the world, changing weather patterns. There's a lot of thinking going to that mm. sort of thing. So whether it's, you know, the Vermentina from our grower, planting Nero, um, finding new styles of Grenache. So the last three years we've put out a Grenache that's current vintage, no oak. Wow. Uh, and that's been um, really successful, getting people's head around that. You mm-hmm. know, it's current vintage, there's no oak. It's a really pretty, pretty it, wine, great it, colour. Is it kind of in a, bo- in, in a Nouveau style? A little bit heavier than Nouveau. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it just proves, again, what a versatile variety Grenache is. Absolutely. When you think you make rosé out of it, mm. you can make... Make um, a lot of rosé in yeah, Europe. <laughs> you can make, you know, commercial type entry-level tawnies. You mm. can make your premium tawnies. Mm-hmm. You can make um, sort of a yoven, if you like, you know, fresh um, current vintage, no oak. And you can also make oak right. matured products, you know, big old punchins or something like that. Yeah. So um, that's a really important variety to the Sibbletsfield story. Now, I know that um, when a lot, you know, with winemakers, when they start uh, at a new winery, you know, they're, they're being expected to go out into the market and, and the trade to talk about, they have to talk about wines that possibly their predecessors have made, you know, and it can be a little bit um, daunting, a daunting prospect. Is it daunting to go out and talk about wines have been made by about five or six different winemakers before you? No, it, it, it's not. Um because I think, you know, it's a heritage-listed winery. It's a fantastic story. As you said before, it's a huge part of Australian winemaking history. So you're just part of that and, and you're sharing it. And certainly um, before myself, you know, James Godfrey was at Seville School for 35 years. So, yeah. you know, you really, you know, I love sharing that with people. You know, it's a man's body of work, you know, looking after those wines and, and um, you know, especially, you know, wine like DP90, you know, that... Um, drier, sherry, drier style of tawny with sherry influence. Yeah, it was very much one of uh, probably one of the most awarded um, wines on the Australian wine show circuit. So no, I, I don't, I don't mind to make a history at all. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic that I can have learned about it and share it and have tasted the wines. And mm. now you talked about you talked about um, you know the, the importance of the visitor centre, that the, you know the experience of not just 
you know, coming to the site, not just tasting, but actually being able to, to, to walk through parts of the winery and seeing that history. Um, I, I personally feel that he's probably the one, or at least one of top five most important wine um, visit experiences that you can have. Uh, so I highly recommend people actually take the opportunity because Barossa, you know, it's not that far from Adelaide, so definitely get out. But um, as far as other... Um, events and tastings. Uh, do you know of anything coming up with Sebeltfield? Uh, well, next year's the Barossa Vintage Festival. Okay. Uh, so there's certainly uh, an event uh, at Sebeltfield in April, I believe. So we've had a series of events called Unearthed. So it's discovering um, different parts of, of Sepultsfield and so just having like a pop-up event in the in the Cooper shop or a pop-up event outside the, vinegar, the old vinegar house. Um, so that's certainly will be happening again for the Barossa Vintage Festival. Yep. Um, similarly, Fino will be doing uh, a food and wine matching um, event as mm-hmm. well for that. Um, I went to Fino when it was in Wollonga, but I haven't been to Fino in uh, Barossa yet. Yeah, it's just it's it's still the same ethos, you right. know, local produce, um, food made for sharing. Yep. Um, it's 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 great, and so you know. Our, I have been to fermentation though. That's pretty. That's good awesome. <laughs> And that uh, wine list is of biblical proportions. He loves Grenache too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. Um, but even just, you know, at Sepultsfield, coming to Sepultsfield and doing the Daily Heritage Tour and tasting the wines. Um, we've also got the Jam Factory on site, so there's an art component as well. Great. To visit at Sepultsfield, as well as wine, as well as food, as well as history. Or you could just grab a picnic basket from the kiosk and a glass of wine and sit in our beautiful picnic grounds as well. So, Fantastic. And keep the footy with the kids. So there's... there's really you know something that will appeal to to all our visitors absolutely uh and if if you are aware of them can you possibly share with the listeners um website address and any social media accounts that uh you'd like to encourage people to to follow so it's um uh, is the website yep. and i am sure if you just go into instagram um uh it's it just look up Sebelsfield, you'll find our our Twitter, Facebook, yes, handle, yeah, handle. handle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, um, yeah, but the the crew at Civils were very active on social media, particularly um Instagram and Facebook. Fantastic. Well, Fiona, uh, I really would like to thank you for your time. I'm very much looking forward to tasting uh, some beautiful old wines today. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to, to yeah show some appreciation for your uh, to, to sharing your story on the podcast. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. And as always, thank you for listening to another episode of the Vincast Wine Podcast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I would love for you to follow me on social media. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast is at the Vincast on Twitter. Uh, find me on Facebook, hit that like button to follow me, and check out some of the uh, the photos and links that I share on there. Uh, And I'd love for you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, uh, where you can see some of my uh, videos like my Let's Taste series, Opening Up Australian Wines, and more recently, uh, a series on the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show, where Fiona was actually one of the judges. Uh, Make sure you like some of the videos and leave some comments for me. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, any form of different... uh, podcast sharing app Uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available and it's also a great way for you to provide feedback by leaving a five-star rating and a review 
Uh, of course, all the information is available on my website, intrepidwino.com. You can email me at thevincast at gmail.com. Uh, looking forward to bringing you some new episodes very soon. But until then, bye. Bye.